Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us in New York, I'm really pleased to say, is Carl Weinberg, High Frequency Economics Chief Economist and Managing Director, and he joins us right now. Good morning to you, Carl. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Is the trade war on hold, and for how long will it be on hold? It is on hold. It'll be on hold until it's not on hold. There's no reason <laughs> to suspect that it's going to go either well uh, or badly. Uh, the scorecard is this. I think uh, China is having its way with the United States in this conversation, and uh, this was a, a back down by the United States. Uh, yeah. It avoids uh, a, a conflict, a tariff war that would have been to everybody's disadvantage, and it gives people a time to cool off. So I'm all in favor of it, and I hope it lasts, and I hope that uh, China and the United States can learn to work together rather than knock each other's heads. Well, in. we can discuss how long-lasting it might be. Um, for now, let's explore the vague commitments, the Chinese pledging to, to rebalance the disparity between Chinese and the United States trade yeah. surplus. Um, how firm is that commitment to rebalance that, and, and what are you expecting to see, Carl? We've seen commitments to boost imports of energy, agriculture. Are they good things? Yeah, well, they'd be good things if they would happen. I don't know exactly how you make them happen. I remember John Maynard. I remember reading about John Maynard Keynes uh, talking to Bertel Olin about why Germany doesn't export more. You know, why doesn't Germany export more? And, and his idea was that Germany had to impoverish its workers to make all of its stuff cheaper. Um, I think at the end of the day, you know, the United States has to produce more stuff that China wants. We have stuff that China wants on the technology side, and, yeah. and we're not selling it to them. And that would be one way to reduce all of this and that's the Chinese point. And as I said, I think the Chinese are really having their way in this conversation. Well, let's talk about to what extent. The Chinese, their commitments over the weekend, how much of that is just an organic, natural consequence of more growth in China, that they will need more foreign agricultural goods, they will need more foreign energy sources as well? Undoubtedly, uh, that's going to, growth is going to help move this conversation forward. They've agreed to buy things like energy. All right, We make energy. We export energy now in the United States. That's new. We have a comparative advantage in it, if you will, over uh, China. And uh, so, therefore, we're going to sell some more of it. So I think that's kind of a natural evolution. Uh, I really do believe that a lot of the substance of what we've seen this weekend is really just a face-saving way for both sides to exactly. back down from the cliff rather exactly. than any real commitment to do anything. It just gives everybody a way to say, okay, just kidding, haha, let's move on with the conversation. I strongly agree. And then within the face saving, Dr. Weinberg, is the timeline. And the Chinese have every advantage, don't they? Don't they just wait? Well, they're growing at uh, in a bad year at just under 7%, and the United States in a good year is growing at 2.5%. Yeah. So you do the math on that, and you start off with uh, China slightly larger than the U.S. economy in terms of uh, converting, looking at its economy in terms of the purchasing power of the money rather than the exchange rate, the way the World Bank looks at it. So they're already the largest economy on earth, and they're just going to pull farther and farther ahead with their Silk Route. Their exports are going to grow faster and faster than the United States. They have already become the largest economy on earth and they're yeah. on track to become the dominant economy. Well, I was going to say, Carl, the, the trade hawks, what they really wanted was not just to rebalance the trade surplus, it was to go after Made in China 2025, to go after the protected industries that they <clears throat> want to dominate on a worldwide basis. Um, have on. we seen a big loss for Navarro, <coughs> Wilbur Ross and, and Mr. Well, and, and John, to your weekend? good question, Greg Villiers 
posits in his morning note that Mr. Lighthizer and Mr. Navarro may resign. Yeah, I actually saw the same thing in his morning you note. You did? And, and yeah. You were read in on the I was Chinese very, notes. I was very, oh, very read in. Um, Carl, Carl, to what extent is it a loss for them over the weekend? And also, I should add, to what extent is this actually about a foreign policy goal that could come about next month when the United States sits down with North Korea? Yeah, so um, there's a lot of questions in the question that you raised, right? I mean, Navarro, uh, uh, in my view, all right, his point of view has always been wrong. So to have him excluded from the administration because what he's doing is not working or what he wants to do is not going to work, all right, that's a logical extension. It's an evolutionary sort of thing. It's not a revolutionary sort of thing. Uh, but I, I think that his mercantilist right. approach to U.S. trade is just, is just off. As far as North Korea is concerned, I think the Chinese have a very clear upper hand here. Uh, the Chinese yeah. are saying to the North Koreans, you know, we'll give you what you want. Do what we want you to do, which is to make friends with South Korea and then to annex yourself to what we're doing. And that moves South Korea out of the U.S. Yeah. fold. Carl, I want to rip up the script. And we, I know we can do this with you because you're prodigious in your, your history and ability. We have a merger this morning, which is pretty cut and dry. And it's all these alphabets, GE, to buy Webco for, what is it, John, $11 billion, something like that. After tax benefit, it's $10 billion. But this barely describes that GE Transportation, flat on its back, is going to be taken out where GE owns 50.1% of the Westinghouse Brake Company of 1869 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, outside of Pittsburgh as well. And the fact is, these are multinational companies. They're a perfect manufacturing example of a true multinational vision, which I would suggest the president looks at as a discreet uh, 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 domestic company outside Pittsburgh. They're not just another brake company outside Pittsburgh, are they? They're well, truly multinational. Yeah, I think what you're hitting on, Tom, is the education that this administration is getting, which is that trade is not a domestic issue, all right, but most American business is multinational. I mean, even my little business does uh, two-thirds of its revenues come from uh, overseas. Uh, production chains yeah. are linked. You know, you go after NAFTA, for example, as the current administration has, and suddenly the automobile manufacturers, a core industry in the United States, are saying, whoa, this affects us. We have to, to rope it back in so that our core businesses aren't affected and the whole economy isn't affected. So I think there's an educational process going on within the administration, which is why the Navarros may be stepping to this being pushed yeah. to the side and bigger more adults are coming into the room and john what's so important about this is i'm going to assume within transportation and trains and brakes it's wildly competitive yeah, of I course mean, it there's got to be like five, six, seven uh, people is, but from, bidding on the next train uh, in away, Argentina. Away from the specifics of one particular industry, this was always about whether you want to maintain the status quo. Not maintain free trade, because we don't have free trade. It was about whether you maintain the status quo. And multinationals in the United States quite clearly benefit from the status quo. And the view in the C-suite is don't take the risk with the status quo to open up Chinese markets aggressively. They will over time. We can wait. We make enough money as it is. This administration took a very different stance. This administration looked at the Chinese, a very protectionist regime that has leached on global trade for over a decade now and more, and said we need to do something aggressively. Now, Carl, as you sit there as a business owner that benefits from the status quo, 
Are you basically saying that you're not happy with this administration taking the risk of aggressively opening up Chinese markets when the downside is the status quo could become something much, much worse? Yeah, well, I think that uh, ripping up the script, as Tom likes to say, without having a new script in its place is a risky business. Yeah. Right? And, and Tom can get away with it because he's Tom, but uh, the U.S., economic policy can't get away with it because there are many more complicated moving parts. And to my mind, the, f the fault in this area of the Trump administration has been that they've been willing to take things off the table and to break things up to remove elements from pieces from the puzzle without having replacement pieces ready to go. And that's been true of the China policy. It's been true of NAFTA, where we're now seeing them reel that back in as well. Or it was true of Trans-Pacific Partnership, where suddenly we want to get back in it again. It's, it's true of so many things. Yeah. Because you can't leave a vacuum, because if you leave a void, someone like China will step into it and fill it for you. Carl Weinberg, fantastic to have you with us this, this morning and really appreciate your time. High Frequency Economics Chief Economist and a Managing Director. The book is standoff how America became ungovernable, but what matters is the author is Bill Schneider. He has definitively put history first in our review of America, our politics, and of course the chaos that we're in right now. I love the blurb at the beginning. In a little more than 50 years, America policies have gone from Camelot to Game of Thrones. I guess that really says it all. Uh, Bill Schneider, Game of Thrones. Which character is President Trump playing? I haven't seen the Game of Thrones. You're the only one you. who hasn't. But the, but the answer is the chaos that's out there. We've seen before. How do you get beyond, whether someone's a Republican, Democrat, whatever, how do we get beyond where we are now to something bordering on civility and stability? Normally the answer is a crisis. We're a system that's very difficult to govern. We were designed not to be easy to govern. Uh, when there's a crisis, everything comes into place. You know, for one year after 9-11, Democrats supported President Bush. And the country it looked like a consensus was being built because there was a crisis in the world and in the United States. It didn't last very long because a year after 9-11, President Bush started the uh, rollout for the Iraq war. And all the old divisions surfaced once again. I look at where we are and help John Farrell here, the young man from the United Kingdom, <laughs> and that there's this populism mood that's out there. We see it everywhere. What is the flavor of populism that is the standoff of American politics? The flavor of populism is resentment of elites. Uh, that's very deep. Resentment's deep. a big word here, isn't it? Resentment, yeah. yeah there's a lot of resentment. Uh, and... Um, uh, in the United States, you know, the, the the constituency that Trump mobilized are basically people who feel disrespected. They went into a rage over President Obama. Uh, they called it the, the reign of political correctness because political correctness is the belief in diversity and inclusion. And a lot of these working class white men think inclusion does not include them. That's a really interesting point. And to your point, Bill, we've had four presidents, two Democrats, two Republicans that have promised to unite and to heal and totally and utterly failed. Why That's is it right. so different this time around? We have a president who is governing by dividing. Uh, president Trump is doing something no other president has done. He ran as a divider. 
by mobilizing this angry constituency that feels disrespected. Remember Hillary Clinton called them a basket of deplorables? Well, they erupted then in that campaign, uh, and they feel as if no one's paying attention to them. The economy that affects them is is uh, failing, yeah. uh, and these people have no place in a world of political correctness. Can he deliver for them? We don't know yet. Uh, he, the economy is moving along nicely, and if that happens and it helps them get ahead, uh, then they'll be very appreciative. But the fact is there's very little evidence that the economic growth that the country is now right. enjoying is helping people much right. at the bottom. Where were you? Were you on the CNN set in 1994? Yes. The, the Republican. I, I sat there. I remember sitting on the couch. The only major network that covered it was Dan Rather on CBS, and there was this revolution in 1994. That's Absolutely right. stunning. Is that what we're faced here in November? We could be. That would be. They're talking about a blue wave instead of a red wave. That was the first time in forty years in nineteen ninety four that uh, the Republicans took over the House of Representatives yeah. over Congress. It was a revolution. Did anybody see it coming? My recollection is pretty much no. No, not really. And we know what happened that year historically. What happened is gun owners. And the religious right came out in huge, unprecedented numbers. Nine million new midterm Will voters. Will the blue crew come out this time around? That's what we don't know. It would include a yeah, lot of young people. Yeah, but you're Bill Schneider. You know. What are, what's going to happen here? Well, you know, there's an old rule. Never make predictions, especially about the future. Uh, well, the, the <laughs> John, you're writing that down, right? <laughs> that was Yogi Berra, if I want, if I can cite my did, source. Did Megan write that in the wedding register yesterday? You, John? I, how long has that taken you? Twenty three <laughs> minutes and eighteen seconds <laughs> to bring up the royal wedding. John, a question for Bill Snyder, please. Bill, just to complete this conversation, the risk for many people listening in our audience, investors, business leaders, is that if the president can't address the problems that the minorities that you've brought up, that um believe they haven't been listened to over the last several decades. If he can't address those problems, that this country swings aggressively to the left. How big is that risk? Oh, I think there is a risk that that will happen. Uh, it very much depends on whom the Democrats, who, who catches fire among Democrats. Will it be a strong progressive candidate like Elizabeth Warren? It could be Joe Biden. He would be the logical next person. The problem is he's well into his 70s and he's part of the past. We don't know. That's what primaries are all about. And they're inherently unpredictable. But someone will always catch fire. The old rule is Democrats fall in love and Republicans fall in line. That didn't happen in 2016. Republicans fell in love with Donald Trump and Democrats fell in line behind Hillary Clinton. So even those rules aren't necessarily yeah. the case. Bill Schneider, thank you so much, and congratulations. The book is Standoff, How America Became Ungovernable with a Fabulous Tapestry History to Drive Forward to the Midterm Elections and then to 2020. Of course, Bill Schneider at George Mason and for years associated and in inventing our political coverage at uh, CNN. Soaring prices, widespread hunger, rampant crime, failing health system, and a large-scale exodus of its citizens. And yet, President Nicolas Maduro has won a second term as the president of Venezuela. Here to tell us more about it is Patricia Laya, our Venezuela bureau chief, joining us now on the phone. Patricia, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, do people in Venezuela regard the results of the election as uh, legal? 
Um, well, it'd be hard for me to, to speak on behalf of Venezuela, but we did visit a lot of uh, voting centers yesterday, and many of them were in the western side of Caracas, which is the more popular areas, and they were practically empty. Um, many of them, I was the only person even there, apart from the people that were working at the voting center. So clearly you have a very disillusioned and uninterested electorate who's um, already fighting a daily plight to do about just anything, uh, finding food, being able to afford food once you can find it. Uh, public services are completely collapsed. There's running water has become a luxury in Caracas and most of Venezuela. You have power outages uh, happening for hours. Public transportation is um, becoming more and more difficult as spare parts are hard to find and import into the country. So, of course, a large, large uh, percentage of Venezuelans were completely uninterested in yesterday's event. So before we get into some of the economic implications of the continued reign of Maduro, I'm wondering, almost 48 percent of the population did vote. Who are his supporters? So um, those are the numbers according to the uh, National Electoral uh, um, Authority. But, uh, so you don't buy them? Uh, well, you know, it's hard to know. Some people do cast doubts on them. Um, but, of course, you do have um, a large government machine that encourages uh, people to vote by offering um, bonuses or certain prices. There were hundreds of thousands of points outside of electoral uh, centers yesterday that if you prove that you voted, um, they'll give you a uh, you know, a certain price. They don't tell you what it is outwardly, right? But you assume that it's just a, a deposit uh, into your account. At some of the centers, I even saw people handing out bread and water to voters. I see. Um, so, yeah, there's just uh, there's a machine that's encouraging people to come out and vote. Okay, uh, so let's talk about the implications, because I am looking at Pereira Sabans, uh, that is the state-owned oil company, that are falling. And yeah. the I, uh, that the uh, International uh, Energy uh, Agency has been coming out out and saying we they expect Venezuela oil output to decline to uh, an index basically uh, a negligible amount yeah. what's the prospects why are why are things so bleak and getting bleaker for Venezuela at this point yeah, so oil production is already at a 30 or 40 uh, year low. Um, you have many of the oil workers just walking out, uh, not only because they're so poorly paid, but because they're too hungry and weak to operate heavy machinery. Um, you have ConocoPhillips uh, on a global assault against PDVSA trying to uh, take some of his $2 billion arbitration award that it was granted last month. And you, on top of all of that, you have uh, the Venezuela under active review for oil sanctions on behalf of the U.S., which would be sort of the deadly blow to an economy that's already in crisis. So the outlook is for everything to just continue to worsen from now on. Does the president recognize that your description and indeed the description of most media outlets about what the majority of people in Venezuela deal with on a daily basis, does he recognize that that is true? No, he does not. I don't think he has ever even uttered the word hyperinflation or, or anything of the sort. Um, everything um, that he does sort of um, agree or admit, uh, he characterizes it as the war waged uh, from the U.S. against Venezuela. Um, he blames everything as Venezuela being under economic attack from other nations across the globe. Okay, but if he just to sort of move a little further on that, if you're under it, let's say let's say that is uh, let's just take that as uh, his version. Yes. Does he 
admit or recognize that there are people who are going hungry, that there is no running water, that electricity is intermittent, and that no one can afford to buy food? No. I mean, he'll admit it to a certain very extent, uh, but nothing even close. He, he will mention some of these um, issues during press conferences and things like that. And the funny thing is that he kept uh, repeating that, you know, after he was elected, um, he was going to solve, you know, a majority of these issues. What we're wondering is how have those um, options eluded him so far as, as to how we can continue? Uh, the, the economy is expected to contract 9% uh, this year. Inflation is set to hit 13,000%. The currency has lost more than 99% of its value, right? Um, there are a lot of things that he, he needs to get on the right path on. Patricia Laya, thank you so much for being with us. Good luck to you. And uh, it sounds pretty hopeless. I'm hoping that there is something else uh, that will perhaps help mitigate the situation or perhaps uh, cause a change uh, to the at least policies of the leadership. Patricia Laya, Venezuela Bureau Chief, talking to us about those Venezuelan elections and Shares of Tesla, they are up right now a little bit more than 3%. This uh, comes after Elon Musk, uh, the founder and uh, chief executive of Tesla, announces details about uh, two variants of the Model 3. Indeed, one of those variants is estimated to cost about $78,000. That's twice the price of a base Model 3. And it reminds me of uh, an old National Airlines commercial uh, entitled, uh, Is This Any Way to Run an Airline? Is This Any Way to Run a Car Company? Here to help us answer that question, Kevin Tynan, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Analyst for Everything's Automotive. Kevin, always a pleasure. Um, I know I'm dating myself by talking about National Airlines, but we all know what happened to National Airlines. So I'm curious, is this any way to run an automobile company by having the chief executive tweet out? I mean, I get you know, it gets you tons of free publicity. You never have to do an ad in your life. But is this the way to run a company that's trying to produce mass automobiles? Well, I... I Look, I guess that goes all the way up to uh, the president communicates via tweet now, too. So um, I think Elon Musk is that sort of new generation of, of CEO uh, tweeting out plans, uh, you know, calling analyst boneheads on the call. So, you know, until until the shareholders react, he'll, he'll continue to push the envelope in that way, I'm sure. So what is your thought about this uh, announcement and the new loaded versions of the Tesla Model 3, aren't they just having challenges getting the regular Model 3 out there? Well, I don't, I'm not sure they want to get the regular Model 3 out there. When you look at, you know, the quarterly reports and, and, you know, running at, at an operating loss and, you know, the idea is, is to still be up market until, uh, you know, they can get production. I'm not sure you're ever going to see the $35,000 vehicle. Um, you know, so in that in that way, this makes sense to be selling, uh, you know, the premium vehicles. I think two things happen, though. One is at $78,000 per 
before autopilot even. Um, that, that's not even included in that $78,000 price tag. But at $78,000, you worry about cannibalization of the Model S, which is priced a little bit higher. But, you know, if you look at revenue per unit over the past couple of quarters, it's in that 80, you know, 80 to $90,000 range. So you're pushing up against Model S. The other thing is how many of those 500,000 deposits we hear about all the time were people expecting to be able to actually get a $35,000 vehicle, which probably won't be at least until some point of 2019, if ever. And doesn't this also bring into question the competition models from BMW as well as lower price models from Toyota, Nissan, et cetera? Right, yeah, and I and I still believe that those manufacturers are only half-heartedly involved in the battery electric vehicle market. Um, you know, there's announcements, and you see this long lead time till those get to market. And I think that's just simply because the business economics of the drivetrain uh, drivetrain technology just don't make sense yet. And basically, Tesla proves that with every quarterly report, right? And and I think you saw. General Motors with Chevrolet Bolt, and we, we're constantly hearing how Tesla outsells Bolt. And I keep arguing, well, they're not trying to sell Chevrolet Bolt. It was an experiment, a finance experiment, to see what the economics of the technology look like. Knowing it's not profit is profitable is why you don't see Chevrolet Bolt being marketed or aggressively sold, because you're losing money on everyone you, you, that, that you do put in customers' hands. So the idea is, is that we can do this. We have the technology. It's up on the shelf. If this ever looks like it's profitable, we'll put it in a good-looking vehicle or a compact crossover, which is the best-selling segment in the U.S., and we'll sell them like we want to sell them. Well, I just also want to mention getting this news item uh, from Greg Jarrett in the Bloomberg Newsroom that at least one person is dead after a Tesla Model S was found in a pond on a property in Alameda County on Sunday night. This, according to the California Highway Patrol, uh, this in uh, you know in Castro uh, near Castro Valley, um, are Tesla automobiles getting a pass in terms of what they can do versus other electrified or what you might call hybrid technology cars can do? Well, I, I think um, I, I don't know that that's totally. Tesla's fault. Uh, I think autopilot, and I don't know if this incident was autopilot was involved. I'm just, you know, going over some of the events recently. Um, you know, I think there's certainly misinterpretation of what that system can do. And I think when you look at even the the um, most recent crash where, or the one before the one you just mentioned, where it hits a parked fire truck, and you're wondering why why does it not see a stopped object and and you know stop driving towards it, um, it just tells me that people don't understand autopilot in the way it's supposed to work. And you just don't see that from from Cadillac and, and Super Cruise. I think for some reason, the consumer understands uh, that those are driver aids and not expected to be uh, the, the full control of the vehicle given over to the, to the driver or to the vehicle from the driver. Um, you know, and perhaps that's way back in the day when you had Elon Musk's wife of the time, you know, dancing in the driver's seat with no hands on the wheel, why that misconception is out there. But it certainly seems to be real. Is there a misconception about what the consumer wants when you have Ford getting rid of pretty much their entire sedan lineup going to SUVs and pickups, except for the Mustang, I believe, uh, where Tesla doesn't have an SUV, really, or a pickup? 
Right, and I and I think in in Ford's defense, I there, and I think this is industry wide. What you're seeing is certainly the death of the coupe and the sedan, um, but also a, a sort of a change in the shape. So we're still going to have small vehicles. We're going to have fuel efficient vehicles. Uh, they're just going to be shaped differently. So rather than what we know in Ford Taurus um, or Ford Focus, that just gets lifted up a little bit, looks a little bit more like a like a compact crossover where you have the higher ride height that people like, a little bit more utility and usable space. Um, you know, and maybe you use a car name or maybe you don't, but it's it's essentially filling that gap of utility that people need. It's just not shaped with what we know conventionally to be a car. What sh- what else should we know about Tesla that we don't focus on? Is it battery technology? Is it uh, drive range? Is it, you know, weather uh, conditions when it gets cold? We note that the uh, range uh, on an electric vehicle can change dramatically. You know, I, I think that the the product itself, for the most part, other than, you know, those issues with autopilot, dry, I, I think the consumer is is educated and, and aware or at least comfortable with what the vehicles can do. Um, I think the biggest misconception is that, you know, and, and in our space, it winds up being more about the financials when you when you dive into the numbers of the company. And that's everything from the volume numbers down to the gross margin numbers that everybody talks about. And then the profitability of the company going forward. I think this is a, a firm that's really valued like it's a, a global volume automaker, and, and it's really not, or it's not yet at least, um, you know, in terms of market cap, comparing it to Ford and in terms of, uh, you know, volume, comparing it to whoever, BMW or General Motors, and it's just not in that ballpark yet, Um, you know, and it's going to take some doing to get there. I I was just looking at gross margins, somebody up their target price because they are expecting better than uh, what was forecast gross margins on Model 3, and and that's entirely possible. But at the end of the day, I keep saying this is an automaker. And, you know, gross margins are going to be somewhere in that 20% range. And and I don't see Tesla doing anything production-wise, manufacturing-wise, that gets them to that 25% when companies like Toyota, BMW, Volkswagen are at 20%. Thanks very much. Kevin Tynan, Bloomberg Intelligence, Senior Analyst for All Things Automotive. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.